touching down in Stuttgart. Absolute destruction is what I'm seeing. Everything is destroyed. Twisters tear across the four states from Chautauqua, Kansas, through Baxter Springs and Pittsburgh, Oklahoma. This has gotten uh, bad. We're literally about two minutes and 20 seconds in front of this storm. We're going where no sane research team has ever gone before. Uh, we need to get out of here. Oh, yeah. Go east. I see it. I see it. We've got a tornado warning issued here in Dawson County. We're approaching uh, rapidly from the southeast. Right back here. This is a massive walkout here. <laughs> I hate lightning. Oh! You guys are in elementary school when the movie Twister came out. It was 1996. Some of you guys seem to remember the movie. And it began, it began a phenomenon known as storm chasing. In 2007, the uh, Discovery Channel came out with a documentary called Storm Chasing. There you have it. Um, and one of the interesting things, both in the movie and in the documentary, you have this team that goes out. And in the movie or in the documentary, in this team, you have both a scientist and you have a film guy. And each of them, the, the scientist is trying to figure out how in the world do you track and how in the world do you map what storms will do, what tornadoes and twisters will do when they emerge and then where they move. The film guy is just looking for some great shots. So whether it's the movie or whether it's the documentary, you get some great footage. Uh, if you anything like me, I get goosebumps at a good storm, all right? I love storms, all right? I love thunder. I love summer. This time of year is phenomenal. It gets me really, really excited. If I wake up one morning and it's completely storm, tree limbs are on the ground, I'm absolutely depressed because I love a good storm, all right? We're going to talk this morning about this idea, does God still perform signs and wonders? And in many regards, I think it's a little bit like storm chasing. Uh, when you walk out one morning, you're not guaranteed to find a tornado. Just like a miracle, you don't walk out your door and find it. There's something extraordinary about miracles. But for many of us, and I'd say in our culture, in our day and time, there's a sense and a fascination with the miraculous. I think you and I live in a day and a time in which there's a receptivity and an openness, if not an interest, in the miraculous. You and I want to see the miraculous. There's a huge interest in that. The question for us typically is, how in the world do we find it? How in the world do we experience it? And where do I need to be? And what do I need to do in order to see and experience the miraculous? So the question I want to ask this morning is, in a sense, is God still doing the miraculous? He parted the Red Sea in the Old Testament. He provided food in the wilderness. He healed uh, sick people. He, he resurrected. We see all kinds of miraculous things throughout the scriptures. And the question is, is he still doing that today? And if he is, then you and I, in our interests, want to know how in the world can you and I track that and find it? If any of us are really even more honest with ourselves, it's not just that we want to experience it, but we'd love to know how in the world to perform it. Can I make and do miracles? Uh, last spring break, you, uh, Marcy and I uh, were in San Diego. We stayed at a, uh, one of these kind of business hotels in downtown San Diego. They had all kinds of conferences that came through in our week that was there. And one of the conferences that came through toward the end of the week was a magician's conference. And so you had these guys in the elevator, and they're all a little peculiar. I'll be perfectly honest, you know, kind of socially a little bit out there. Um, and uh, we talked to this one guy, and we said, hey, how long have you been a magician? And he said to Marcy and I, I'm not a magician. I, I'm a miracle maker. Marcy and I just kind of looked at each other and thought, oh dear, turned away and just tried to not to start break down laughing until this guy got out of the elevator, right? So the question is, not only can you and I experience miracles, but can we make miracles? 
Just this spring semester, I heard about a group that came in town that was doing all kinds of miraculous things, and they even had some workshops to teach you how to do a miracle. So is it like a conference? Can you attend a conference, get your little miracle notebook, your little miracle kit, and be on your way, right? So what's happening in our day and time? How in the world do we navigate in that kind of culture? That's kind of where I want to go this morning. Is God still doing the miraculous? And if so, how do I experience it? And if I can't experience it, what should I do? And could I even perform them myself? That's all where we're going, all right? This will be kind of our last Sunday in our series on difficult questions. We'll kind of close out next week. But this will really be kind of the last difficult question we answer. And a question that I think a lot of people are asking today. I think there's great interest in that. So we're going to kind of dive in head first. So let me pray for us, all right? Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the real miracle maker, and that you have performed the astonishing Lord. And I pray this morning that you would give us just a, a greater openness to you, that we would not minimalize that which you are possible and capable of, Lord, that you would give us a fresh sense of how you are moving today, Lord. I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we open your word and we try to wrestle with this question. I pray that you'd give us humility as well. And going not where we can't go in, the, in your scriptures and going where we might go, but going there in humility and wisdom and, and independence. Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning, um, that you would guide us through this and that you would help us to think wisely, that you'd help us to think biblically, Lord. I pray even as we walk through this, um, Lord, that you would maintain in us an anticipation of your ability to do anything anywhere at any time. And yet I pray that you'd give us wisdom as well to know how to really gauge that and to know how to walk through that and to know how to pray, to know how to trust, to know how to believe, to know how to walk in the midst of those kinds of moments that we would love to see a miracle, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, I kind of want to do two things this morning for us. Uh, a little bit like a storm, what I want to do for you is give you guys a sense and a sense of how do you track miracles. We're going to kind of walk through the biblical data, and what I want to do for you guys is give you a sense in the past, how have miracles appeared, where did they appear, and why did they appear? And as we kind of get a sense of the past historical trend or pattern that will help inform, in a sense, how do we track them today? So that's kind of where we're going to go. Um, like a, a, a tornado scientist, in a sense, who's going to go on uh, t- data scientifically of tornado as they are encountering it, what we're going to do is kind of go on some of the biblical data of miracles. What do we see about them, all right? In a sense, as you look at our Bible, Genesis to Revelation, we see all kinds of miracles. In fact, I'd say a few hundred years ago, in many regards, our culture was trying to diminish and remove all of those miracles from our Bible. And so someone actually written Bibles and came out and produced and published Bibles that in a sense were stripped away of every miracle. I think nowadays in time, we're not so much wanting to strip away the miracles. We're wanting to know, why don't I experience them today? And so in a sense, if you look through the biblical data, what do we see? What are the trends? What are the patterns? How do we find them? What are they? Why are they there? And when are they there? All right, that's kind of where we're going to go. I want to define for you guys a miracle this way. A miracle is an extraordinary work of God that inspires awe and wonder and testifies to us about him. A miracle is an extraordinary work of God that arouses awe in us and testifies to us about God. And in a sense, they are amazement with a statement. It's not just for wonder and for entertainment, like thunder in a sense, but it is to teach you something about God. So every time you kind of walk through it in the biblical data, what you're going to see is those pieces all coming together. And in that regards, in many ways, let me kind of buttress and give you guys a few disclaimers. One, every time God intervenes in human history, it's not necessarily miraculous. In, in the sense of we don't believe in a God who is deist. We don't believe in a God that has created and then has stepped back from his creation and never intervenes. In fact, Colossians will say that he's, Christ is not just a creator, but he upholds all things together. That if Christ were to remove his hands, this entire universe would just spin and fall apart. In a sense, not only has he created, 
but he's holding things together. So in a sense, God is always intervening, but there are some times that he's going to intervene in what we would call miraculous ways. And so where are those? Why do we see them? I'm going to give you guys kind of an example of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, as you kind of walk through the biblical data, what you're going to see is all kinds of words that are denoting the same thing. Sometimes the words that denote these miracles are signs. Sometimes it's wonders. Sometimes it's miracles. Sometimes all three of those words are all used together. Here's Hebrews chapter 2 that kind of begin our discussion. After it was first spoken through the Lord in, in Hebrews chapter 2, the beginning uh, before this is talking about salvation. So after salvation was at first spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. How was it confirmed? It was confirmed as God was also testifying with them to us, both by signs and, and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus Christ spoke, in a sense, the salvation message of his death, burial, and resurrection. Those that would come after it would confirm that message, both themselves and Jesus doing signs and wonders. And in a sense, what you see from Hebrews 2 is that as signs and wonders come, they're always validating a message and its messengers. And so as, in a sense, you see the miracles that come from Genesis to Revelation, they're always, in a sense, alongside of the message that's being brought forth by a messenger. And in that regard, it's always inspiring awe, and it's always making you listen because the miracle is going to teach you something. All right? And in fact, in many ways, I think it's a little bit like walking into a doctor's examination room. All right? Let me give you guys a little parallel. In a sense, you go to a doctor, you're going to see a doctor, and you're going to do what for the first 30 minutes? Wait in a waiting room. So they're going to teach you from the very beginning who's in control and who's the expert. Then you finally ushered in his grace into an exam room where you may wait another 30 minutes, right? And then as you wait in that exam room, what are you probably doing the whole time? Either you're on your phone or you're looking around the walls. And as you look around the walls, what do you notice? A shrine to this guy's past education, right? So every school he's ever been to or thought about has given him a diploma and it is all on the wall in the room that you are waiting on him. Second of all, what do they often do, depending on the doctor you're going to as you wait? Take off your pants and put on a gown, all right? Because what's happening, all right? What's happening is by the time that doctor arrives and he prognoses and diagnoses you and tells you what you need to do, they want to make sure that you are as awe-inspired of them and that you're going to listen. And if the diplomas didn't do it, the pants off do, because no one without pants is going to argue with someone with a diploma. It's the same kind of thing, all right? Doctors want to create awe and inspiration so that you will listen to them, okay? And that you will hear their message. God is going to do the same thing. The miraculous is going to create awe and inspire you so that you will listen and that you will hit the ground in in humility and independence so that you will see his glory all around like we sang this morning. What miracles are going to do is they're going to create awe in you so that you will listen to him. What Hebrews will tell us is that that which we are going to listen to in Hebrews 2 is the salvation message that Jesus proclaimed. So in a sense, they're always coming alongside of revelation as God and through his spokespersons are speaking. In a sense, not just the what and the why of miracles, but where do you find them? As you look from Genesis to Revelation, what you find is that miracles are not occurring all the time. They aren't in every single book of your Bible. In fact, as you look from Genesis to Revelation, as you look at biblical history and you look at human history, really what you begin to see is that miracles, in a sense, aren't always consistently occurring through time. In a sense, they're occurring in clumps around events. In a sense, miracles are a little bit like curdled milk. It's going to clump up inconsistently as you pour it out, and you're going to find little clumps. And what you're going to do through human history is you're going to see the same thing. I just compared miracles to curdled milk. Sorry. Um, Miracles are going to be the same thing. As you go through human history, they're going to clump up inconsistently through time. So they're not always occurring with the same frequency, the same extremity, the same magnitude throughout. So when and why are they showing up in big clumps? They usually show up in big clumps around unique moments in human history or in unique times in which God is speaking or doing something 
marvel in new. So you think about Genesis to Revelation, where and when do you often see miracles? You often see them as they begin with Moses. Moses is writing a lot of your Old Testament. Moses is helping establish the nation. And so Red Sea happens when? It happens when Israel's being brought out of Egypt. It happens uh, when does the manna in the wilderness happen? When does God provide from the heavens down on the earth miraculously day in and day out? It happens as Israel is wandering in the wilderness and being established and set apart as a nation that will receive the Mosaic law and the commandments in a sense that God has said, hey, here's how I want you to obey me. So one of the first times you really see marvelous miracles is right when God is establishing the nation of Israel. And then what begins to happen throughout Israel's history? Really, a lot of your Old Testament really is just a record of their history. Nothing often is happening that magnificently or that miraculously. You have little periods around Elijah and Elisha where something unique and, and miraculous happens. But for the most part, through Israel's Old Testament history, you don't see a lot all the time of miracles. When you see them again, you see them again when Christ returns, right? Christ is going to return, and all of a sudden, demons are being cast out, the sick are being healed, people are being brought back to life. And is it just with Jesus? No, apparently it's going to be with the apostles as they go out and in the book of Acts establish the church and the New New Testament people of God. And so as you move Genesis to Revelation, what you see is that these miracles are occurring in clumps in human history. They're not necessarily spread consistently through the course of human history. In fact, you're going to have some periods with no miracles. Psalm chapter 74, verse 9. It says, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Psalm 74. They're not seeing signs, miraculous wonders that they had seen when they came out of Egypt. In fact, notice, there also is no prophet. There's no one speaking a new message of God. Therefore, surprise, surprise, there's no miracles. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, or belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three nights and three, earth, three nights in the earth. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, what you see occurring throughout the Gospels is even a shift in the frequency and the magnitude and the amount of miracles, even in Jesus' Gospel ministry. Starts out, he's doing miraculous things, but halfway through, according to the book of Matthew, you notice a dramatic shift. We see the nation of Israel's leadership rejects Jesus, rejects Messiah, and now Jesus begins to teach differently, and he begins to do ministry differently. It's not that he's no longer not doing miracles, but the miracles actually begin to seem to become less frequent. And so even in Jesus' ministry, you don't see the same trend. or you see, you see a trend in which miracles clump up, and they begin to wane out. I'd argue to you guys, even this morning, that in some regards, that's going to happen even in the book of Acts. But let me give you guys one verse, and this kind of begins our discussion, really the heart of the issue and the tension in the question we're talking about this morning. Uh, Right before Jesus is going to take off, this is what he says to his disciples. Mark chapter 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Jesus says, hey, right as I'm about to leave, I want you guys to do is I want you guys to go out and I want you to proclaim the gospel message. And as you do that, expect this. Expect those who believe are going to begin to do miracles as well. It's not just that I'm doing miracles. It's not just that you guys, as you go out, are going to do miracles. But he says to the disciples that they who believe in that message will also be doing miracles. So the great question is this. All of you guys have believed, but are you guys casting out demons? Are y'all raising the sick? And are y'all doing crazy, miraculous things? For the most of us, we're not. For the most of us, we've probably never even necessarily seen a miracle. I've never seen a demon cast out. So the question is, what's happened? <laughs> Jesus seemed to be talking about, hey, in future generations, those who believe will do these things. But and yet, in many regards, for many of us, we're not. So the question is, is God still doing these things today, or did he stop? How would you answer that? 
many regards, if you look through the book of Acts, what you're going to see is that the early church is continuing these things. They're doing all kinds of miracles. And as the church is established, and as the gospel message goes into new cultures, you see miracles all around it to validate the message and to validate the messenger. But the question happens, and the question becomes, what happens after the book of Acts? In many regards, what happens after the New Testament? We don't have written record. In many regards, the difficulty is this. Is Jesus describing the generation that immediately follows, or is he prescribing something for every generation thereafter? That's a great difficult question. As you look through the book of Acts, is Acts describing what happened for the first century church, or is Acts prescribing what will happen for every church age and every church and every city? Ultimately, I'd argue to you guys that in many ways that Acts is a transitional book describing what happened, but not necessarily prescribing what will happen for every church and every city and every age. All right? So Acts is going to be transitional. Even in the book of Acts, what you're going to see is that miracles are happening. Peter and Paul are jailed, and yet what happens? Earthquake happens. Their shackles fall off. They're, they're escaped, right? But by the book, end of the book of Acts, what is happening to Peter and Paul? They're both arrested. No miracles happen. They don't get escaped. In fact, they're going to die upside down, crucified, okay? So by the time you get to the book of Acts, miracles have seemed to wane out. In fact, by the end of the book of Acts, God seems to be doing more through martyrdom than he is through miracles. So even in the book of Acts, it might be a transitional book. Something is happening transitionally with miracles. So what does that mean for you and I today? What, what I want to do for you guys, in a sense, is give you a little sense of historical trend if you had a sense of, in a sense, where a storm arose and what happened as it was arising, the kind of climate that would set up a storm to come, you might have a better sense of knowing how to track a storm. I think miracles are the same. I want you guys to have a sense of the biblical data so that you see the kind of climate that a miracle emerged out of. You saw how long it would last, and you would see what happened as if it moved on. I think miracles are a lot like storms in that sense that as we track them, the past of what we see in the Bible helps set a trend and set a pattern so that you and I can see today, how do we track them? So how do we track them in our generation? You guys turn on the TV, you've noticed for the last 80 years, not that you've been alive for 80 years, but for the last 80 years, all kinds of televangelists, all kinds of famous TV people are doing crazy miracles, right? And I don't know why they always have to hit the forehead to cast out a demon and to get healed, but that always seems to be the spot where the miracle happens. So you have all kinds of stuff happening on TV, and surprise, surprise, often, if you'll send send in a check to those people, you can get a miracle yourself, right? But the question is, are miracles happening? There are some churches that are actually going to have all kinds of things happening, even in a worship service. And my comments about the TV people is not to discount what's happening in their worship service. Okay, let me, let me say that. We'll kind of get to some other uh, modes and denominations here in a little while. But what I want to do is, in a sense, track for you guys what's happening in our generation. I'd also argue that, culturally speaking, we've kind of talked about this before, that in an age that you and I live in of postmodernism, no longer are we, in a sense, diminishing what is spectacular, but we have now personalized everything so that whatever is your experience is valid and true. Meaning that I think it's no coincidence and it's no surprise that the charismatic and the Pentecostal movements have arisen out of that kind of cultural uh, trend and have not just arisen but have flourished. You and I live in a day and time in which experience is the king. That for many of us, and even as I thought about even my spiritual walk in college, what I wanted to do was to bounce from one powerful experience to another. I wanted to have this mystical moment that was just before the Lord and just my, my heart and my mind was blown. Every circuit went off, right? That there's a sense in which I want a powerful experience. And I'm going to say there's nothing wrong with that. But as you look through the biblical period, how do you kind of move through this issue of miracles? Uh, in some regards, what I'm going to tell you guys for us as a church is that we are not what is known as a cessationalist church. That for some that answer the question, is God still performing miracles today? 
there are some, including the seminary that I came out of, that would say God is not doing the miraculous today. He's not healing. He's not uh, allowing for the speaking of tongues. He's not allowing for these kinds of miraculous gifts that the New Testament epistles will speak of. Uh, I'll tell you guys, for us as a church, we don't stand there. We would say that the miraculous is still possible and it is still happening today. But the question is, how do you track it and how do you find it? I'd argue to you guys that they are still happening today, that signs, wonders are still possible, but they are not normative. That those things are possible, but they are not normative. So if I walked out today, would I expect to find a storm? No. If I walked out today, would I expect to find a miracle? No. But if it's possible, should I be open to it and should I pray for it? Absolutely. And so every two weeks, our elders convene and we meet and we uh, elders will talk through the business of our church. And usually once a month, our elders will, will have someone come in who's been diagnosed and we'll pray for a miracle. We'll pray for someone who has life-threatening cancer that's probably going to die in a month. And we'll pray that the Lord would intervene and do something that is miraculous, that he would heal. We do that because we believe that God is still possible and still doing the miraculous. Yet, can I guarantee and am I absolute confident that he will heal? No. <laughs> I've prayed for too many times and healing hasn't happened. And yet, do I still pray? Absolutely, because I believe wholeheartedly that God can. And in fact, I'd say that God can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants. And the historical trends aside, they don't diminish what God could do. And so I pray for that. But I would expect, and I'd have a higher anticipation or expectation, to see those kinds of things happening in places where the message of God isn't yet established. And so in a place where there's a church on every corner, would I necessarily expect to see miracles to validate that message that is known by many already? No. But would I expect to hear in Muslim context that God is appearing in visions and dreams to those who have never heard of Jesus Christ and showing them that he's he's more than a prophet? I do expect that, and I'm not surprised to hear that. So when I hear of things, I don't necessarily discount them, but I don't necessarily expect them in my present day, in my present culture, in my present situation. So the question is, As we look at tracking them, if they are possible but not normative, if we were to experience one, what do we do? If we were to experience a miracle that is possible, what do we do with it? And how do we respond to it? Um, In many ways, I'd argue, you guys, that in some ways, uh, if you look at NBA playoffs, the tagline for the NBA playoffs is where amazing happens. Uh, Except for the fact that my Mavericks went bye-bye last week. All right, so amazing hasn't happened for me. Sorrow and depression has, okay? But if amazing were to have happened and the Mavs came back from, against the dreaded, cursed Spurs, all right, and amazing happened, oh my goodness, all right? Uh, if amazing happened, what do we typically do in the NBA playoffs, all right? I'd argue that the response to the amazing in the NBA playoffs is as contrary to what God wants in our response to the miraculous. Here's why and here's how. LeBron hits a three-point shot falling out of bounds at the end of a game to win the playoffs last year. What do we do of LeBron? We put them on highlights and we run it over and over and over again. Why? Because when the amazing happens in the NBA playoffs, it's all about who? LeBron, right? It's all about the performer. It has nothing to do with a message or has no meaning whatsoever. When LeBron wins a game, what's the significance? What's the meaning? What's the message? There is none other than LeBron is great, right? And and what's the purpose for the mobs, for the crowds, you and I? Entertainment and amusement. Our response to the miraculous in the NBA playoffs is as contrary as to what God would intend for you and I if you and I were to experience a miracle and see the miraculous in our life. Three different things. Specifically, as we experience miracles, I want to argue that it's all about the message. When God does a miracle, what he wants you and I to see is that it's all about the message. And yet sometimes when the mayhem of a miracle happens and we get all caught up in it, 
the message often soon becomes obscured and we lose sight of it. But when God does the miraculous, he's always validating and he's always testifying to something about himself. So don't lose track of the message in the midst of the mayhem. Notice, um, let me give you guys 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Uh, it says this, The Antichrist who is coming in accord with Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. Notice the Antichrist is able to do miracle signs and wonders. Even more, 1 John chapter 4, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Notice in the midst of the mayhem of a miracle, don't lose sight of the message. And that for you and I, sometimes that are so bent to wanting to see something miraculous and that are so bent on experience, sometimes the experiential can overshadow the message. Sometimes for you and I, experience can overshadow truth. Why is that? Because you and I live in a postmodern culture that has said experience is more important than truth or anything that is objective. But really what is truth is internal and subjective. And so sometimes for you and I, experience can obscure the message. And if that's the case, you and I can get misled really easily. Why? Because even the Antichrist, even false spirits, even the evil, even Satan himself can do false miracles. He can create experiences that are misleading. And so be careful with the message. Keep the message central. In fact, one of my favorite quotes um, came from uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was doing ministry in a time known as the Great Awakening. And in the Great Awakening, amazing things were happening of revival. Revival was happening. The Spirit of God seemed to be moving in miraculous ways throughout the country. And God was doing things and bringing men and women to himself in unparalleled ways since that point in history. And in that kind of context, you had in revival services all kinds of wild things happening. All right, People were babbling gibberish. People were doing crazy things. Healings were happening. All kinds of emotional experiences were happening. And here's what Edwards said in that day and in that context. He said this, I don't think ministers are to be blamed for raising the affections of their hearers too high. If that which they are affected with be only that which is worthy of affection, and their affections are not raised beyond a proportion to their importance. He goes on a little further and he says this, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possible I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. Edwards would say throughout in other writings, he'd talk about two different things. He'd talk about light and he'd talk about heat. Light was truth, heat was emotion and experience. Edwards wrote a ton about religious affections, that which stirs within the heart, that which moves the Spirit of God, breaking within us and creating within us an appetite for the things of God. Edwards would talk a lot about affection. He he was not anti-emotion. But Edwards' concern was that sometimes emotion could get ramped up in discord from or in complete separation from the truth of God. And then in the midst of experience, in the midst of emotion, in the midst of even the miraculous, you and I can't lose sight of the message, because that's why it's happening. And for some of us, in the midst of a pursuit of experience or emotion, you and I can actually go and pursue that divorced of the Word of God. So why every morning do we come in here and break the Word of God open? Because this is that which is meant to change our mind, change our affections, and begin the corner piece and the beginning place for where life change happens. And sometimes as a Bible church, I will admit to you guys, we can be more intellectual and more based on science, more based on rationale and intellect than experience. And that is always the way we're going to bend. But Edward's concern was this. Hey, preach the word with as much passion as you want and raise affections as high as you want. But they always have to be wedded together with the word of God and the truth of God. Those always go together. So Edward's looking at that day and time and said, hey, here's what's of utter importance in church and in your response and in your walk spiritually. It's all about the message. So let me say this quick aside about tongues, all right? Um, We are obviously not a church that has in our worship service a time for speaking in tongues, okay? I don't 
think that tongues have ceased. I think tongues are very well possible, very well could occur in some church settings. But I think by and large in our culture, even within evangelicalism today, what you see happening is people's experience of tongues is as divorced from the restrictions Paul would put on it. And so what I want to take you guys is to 1 Corinthians 14. I want you guys to see what Paul says about this kind of exercise. All right, This is what he says about tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, notice that. He's going to say, not that you shouldn't necessarily speak tongues, but what he's going to say is, hey, in light of what could happen if one misuses tongues, you might as well speak 10,000 words, or you'd rather he speak five words with your mind and teach than 10,000 words in tongues if it's not carried out in the way that he's going to talk about. Look at what he says next. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, for God is not a God of confusion. I would argue to you guys that sometimes in a lot of the denominations that are flourishing right now, there is an experience of tongues that for many churches may be very divorced from the restrictions that Paul puts on it in 1 Corinthians 14. There are far more than two or three people that are experiencing it and doing it, and there is by and large no interpreter whatsoever. And if that's the case, Paul says, you know what? Just kick it out of the church worship experience. And what you ought to be doing is something that leads to clarity and to the exaltation of the message and not necessarily the exaltation of the messenger. Because when the mayhem obscures the message, what ends up happening is that one other thing gets exalted. Guess what? What is that? It's the messenger. That when mayhem of a miracle obscures the message, what happens is that the message is no longer central, but the messenger, the performer, is This is what you see in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 and 11. Now there was a man named Simon who was practicing magic and claiming to be someone great, and they all were giving attention to him. Notice, when the mayhem obscures the message, who gets exalted? It's the messenger. So in sports, we run highlights over and over again of LeBron or Kobe as they do the amazing, because it's all about them. The message is they are great. And the point of the miraculous, the point of miracles, the point of tongues, or any of the miraculous things that you and I might see or have the opportunity to experience is that it's always about the message and it is never about the messenger. So, what does that mean? A couple things. One, I'd say what it means is that those that would claim that miracles will happen every time they lay hands are often, I would argue, it's all about them. Why? Because the power is in their hands. It's not about God who may or may not do a miracle. In fact, as you look through the New Testament and you're seeing clumps of miracles happen, even in those clump miracle periods, what you see happening also at the same time, sometimes miracles aren't happening. All right? As you think about Paul and his thorn, Paul had a thorn in his side. He prayed three times that God would remove more than likely a physical ailment. God did not to teach him that in his weakness he was stronger. All right? So sometimes God doesn't choose to do a miracle. In fact, even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, what we see is that Timothy was drinking wine. Interesting. Uh, we won't talk about that this morning. But he was drinking wine because he had frequent ailments. So Timothy is having to, in a sense, nourish his ailments that were physical that were yet to be removed. No miracle had been done to remove his ailments. Even more, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. I'm trying to give you guys these as a reference if you want to look them up. Um, Paul will speak of leaving uh, Trophimus in Miletus ill. So here's a guy that was doing miracles, but for whatever reason, he's leaving a guy ill that he can't do a miracle for. And so even in the New Testament period, what you see happening, even where there's clumps of miracles, some miracles at times are not happening. So be very careful in those that are going to guarantee a miracle. Because I would argue when they're guaranteeing a miracle, sometimes it may be more about them than it is about God who may or may not and who can't be controlled and guaranteed on, right? 
He's able, but he may or may not. In fact, I would argue that since that's the case, one's receiving a miracle or experiencing a miracle has nothing to do with their faith or their sin. All right? So sometimes you may hear, as someone guarantees a miracle, it doesn't happen. And so the conclusion is, you may have some sin in your life. You might need to repent of that. And if you repented of that, then maybe we can get you a miracle. Right? And I'd argue again, Timothy, Paul, guys, we all are going to have sin for the entirety of our lives until we're in the presence of God. And so if the issue is sin and the issue is our angle, then it's always going to be an angle and always an issue. The issue with receiving and experiencing a miracle has nothing to do with the messenger or even the recipient. It has everything to do with God's desire in a moment and his counsel and his wisdom to move. And we cannot necessarily guarantee or know what that is. And if it's not necessarily all about the messenger, then those that can perform miracles are not the spiritually elite. All right, check, check that. If it's not all about the messenger, then those that can experience and those that can perform miracles, if they're happening, they are not necessarily the spiritually elite. Did you check that? Just because someone could perform a miracle does not mean that they are spiritually more mature than you or I. All right, uh, honestly, for Bible churches and for seminaries, uh, this typically works a different way. Uh, there are certain gifts and, and um, ministries of the Spirit that often in different contexts get exalted more than others. So in a Bible church or in a seminary setting, knowledge and teaching are the gifts that are exalted and seen as, hey, these are the quintessential mature gifts. Nothing could be farther from the truth, all right? God gives gifts differently to different people and it has nothing to do with who you are based on the gift you've received. But it's all meant to be exercised in the edification of the body because it's not all about the one who has the gift and is performing the gift. It's all about those that could receive the gift. All right? So it's not about the spiritually elite. Um, I'm going to kind of talk through here one minute about uh, Pentecostal and charismatic movements. Let me say this uh, as a disclaimer. First of all, I think in our day and time, they've done a lot even for us Bible churches. Okay? I think Pentecostal and charismatic brethren, some of which and sisters, that, and some of which may be places that y'all have come from, Uh, in high school and you've come here to college and you're attending with us and you may head back to a Pentecostal or a charismatic church and and I want to say that that's great. I think they've done a ton for us to stretch us and remind us that God is still able to do whatever, whenever, and however. And they often, I think, for, for me especially, have stretched me to be reminded afresh of what God can do it in a moment. And so even though I might not see that they're normative, they've reminded me, you know what, but they're still possible. And you should be praying and praying fervently because God still could even beyond your expectation and your anticipation. But I do think on one angle, there's something that I've seen that's a tendency that I think is really troubling. Within Pentecostal and charismatic uh, theology in some of the churches and some of the movements, there's, there's a belief in a theology that says this, that they talk about baptism of the Spirit as a second event that occurs after your conversion. So in Pentecostal and, and charismatic movements, and hang with me here, Let's say you trust Jesus Christ, you're forgiven of your sins, Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, someone comes, they trust that message. In Pentecostal and charismatic movements, uh, just like ours, they would believe that your sins are forgiven. And if you've not made that decision today, that could be the biggest miracle moment for you. (laughs) That to believe in the message of Jesus Christ, I would argue, is a work that is miraculously of God. You and I don't come to that decision in and of ourselves, but in Pentecostal and charismatic movements, they'd say that at that moment your sins are forgiven, but you are waiting for a second event to occur. And that second event they would refer to as the baptism of the Spirit. And how does that event and when does that event occur? That in that theology they would say that that event occurs when you pledge absolute devotion to Jesus Christ. And when you've done that, you're going to be baptized by the Spirit. And how do you know if you're baptized by the Spirit? You begin to speak in tongues. 
So if you've not yet spoken in tongues, you've not yet been baptized in the Spirit. And the implication is this, two things. One, those that are speaking in tongues are the spiritually elite. Second of all, the implication is this, that if you're not speaking in tongues, the implication is you're still missing out on something that you could have access to right now. Let me kind of debunk and kind of come at that theologically. Baptism by the Spirit is something that occurs at conversion. It is not disassociated with conversion, that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are baptized into his death, and that baptism, that identification with Jesus Christ, also baptizes or or unites you into the body of Christ. And so, baptism of the Spirit is something that occurs at conversion. And second of all, the entirety of what occurred at conversion was not just that your sins were forgiven, but that you were granted all that you needed for life and godliness, that there was nothing left that was being withheld from you. Let me give you guys a few quotes. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul's point is that the moment you trusted Jesus Christ, your sins were forgiven, and God blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You had all you need. There's nothing that you're still waiting on, or there's nothing that you still don't have access to yet. Peter will say it this way, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Then the moment you trust Jesus Christ, you're baptized into Christ's death, you're raised, your sins are forgiven, you're, you're wedded, united to the body, the church of Christ, and you're also given the gift of the Spirit at that moment. Now, at the moment you trust Christ, all that you need for life and godliness is done, given to you. God is not withholding anything from you from the moment you trust Jesus Christ. He's deposited it all to you. Now, the reality is this. Even though we have access to everything, we haven't learned how to use everything, right? So, if you were to see my seven-month-old baby girl right now, Caroline, she has realized over the last two months she's discovered her feet. Um, And she's also thought her feet now are for insertion into her mouth. So, I couldn't even imitate that because I can't get my feet to my mouth anymore, all right, because of flexibility, but that girl can get her feet all the way to her mouth. So if she's wearing pajamas or socks, those things are wet because they are in her mouth constantly. Now, she has feet. She has all she needs to walk, but she hasn't learned how to use them just yet, right? It's a developmental process, but she has already been given all that she needs to walk. The fact that she's not walking does not mean that she's yet to receive what she needs to walk. In fact, It's not as if she hits one year and then all of a sudden we give her her feet. How freaky would that be, right? She already has her feet. She already has all she needs now. That doesn't mean, though, that she's learned how to use it all and she's learned how to walk, but that comes in maturation and transformation and in development. The same is true spiritually, that the moment you trust Jesus Christ, every spiritual gift, every blessing that he has for you, given to you. Now, you may not yet have learned how to walk in that, how to utilize all the gifts and all the resources that he's given you, and that comes in discipleship, that comes in transformation, that comes in development, but you've been given all that you need. And if that's the case, those that are speaking in tongues are not the spiritually elite. Nor are they, if you are not speaking in tongues, nor are you still waiting to receive something from the Spirit of God. He's already given you all that you need. And so I think sometimes within that kind of movement, within Pentecostal and charismatic movements and that theology, I think it sets up a trend that says those that speak in tongues, those that are performing these things, one, are the elite, and two, if you've not yet received those things, you're still being held back or you're still waiting for something. Let me say over and over again, there's nothing that could be farther from the truth because I think the miraculous has nothing to do with the messenger. It's not about the messenger. It's always about the message and the movement of God that inspires awe to teach us about himself. And if that's the case, what is it meant to do for you and I? It's always for the mob. Uh, in NBA playoffs, for the mob, it's about entertainment and amusement. And I'd see, as you kind of walk through the scriptures, there are some that would seek out miracles because they want to be entertained and they want to be amused. Which is why we find in John chapter 12, verse 37, 
that Jesus had done many signs before them that they did not believe in him. Again, signs, miracles are not a cure-all means to get someone into belief and into the kingdom of God. You can see the miraculous, and you may not change at all in what you believe about God. Because experience ultimately is not the biggest arbiter of what you believe and what you see and what you hold to. So let me say this. I think miracles are still happening today. They are possible. I'd say they're not normative. And even though they're not normative, it does not mean that you shouldn't pray for it and hope to see something God could still do something miraculous. And when it happens, and if you have the opportunity to experience it, and I'd argue that in some regards, you and I are always experiencing the miraculous day in and day out. And that you're always seeing, as you look back at this semester, that God has been moving in miraculous ways. And one of the things I want to do for you guys is this semester ends, and I realize that at this very moment, you guys are more stressed about finals and feel like you're as busy as you could ever be. But one of the things I would love for you guys to think about here in the next day or two is just take, a, take an hour aside. And one of the things I want you guys to do is just pull back and reflect, over this semester, what have you seen God do? Over this semester, how have you seen God move? How have you seen a move in your life? How have you seen a move in others' lives? Because I think what it does for you is it reminds you that God is still moving and He's still at work. And that if He's still moving and He's still at work, then He's going to be just as able to handle your finals and whatever stresses you may have about the coming finals or coming summer as He has been about the stresses you've had as you walk through this semester. You guys have seen God do a ton. And God is still at work and He's still doing things in ways beyond our anticipation. And so one of the things I want you guys to do is this. Pull back for just an hour over the next couple days and just write out and list out and meditate on, hey, how have I seen God move this semester? What has God done? What has he done beyond my anticipation? How has he answered prayers? How have I seen him alive, moving, and active in my life? Because he isn't one who was created and stepped back. He isn't one who created and died and then stepped back and just said, good luck with it, and patted it on your butt and said, good luck, show him what you got, right? But he's involved and he's accurate and he's involved in our lives and he's active. And so I want to challenge you guys to consider, hey, how has he been active in my semester? What has he been doing? Because I think that meditation and that reflection will set you guys up to be faithful and to be courageous about what he's about to do in the next week with finals and what he's about to do for you over the course of the summer with whatever fears you may have. It may be heading back home. It may be heading to a job. It may be graduating. I don't know what it is, but as you look back, it sets up the ammunition for you to have the faith to trust that he can move and it will continue to move in the future. So let me pray for us. Father God, you are uh, glorious. Um, that you are invisible and immortal, and yet you are moving and active in ways beyond our anticipation. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would remind us afresh that you can do whatever, wherever, and to whomever at any moment. Father, I pray that you would give us a faith that would trust the, and expect and, and hope for and pray for the unbelievable. Uh, that in the midst of our days, in the midst of our weeks, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see the unbelievable, that, that you've been doing things that maybe haven't even caught our attention pray that you would cause us to reflect on that. You'd allow us to see that, Lord. And, and as we see that, Lord, I pray that you remind us afresh of your character, of your promises, that you would take us back from that experience back to a reminder of the message uh, uh, and the promises of your word, of who you are, that you are who you say you are, that you do what you say you do. And Father, I pray that you give us greater faith, that you give us a greater openness even to the miraculous, Lord. And that even as we step toward it, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to know where the balances are and to, know, uh, to not promise things we cannot promise and to not put ourselves central, even in what we may have seen. But that we'd give you all the glory and all of the credit. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.